Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, with me today is someone who the listeners are uh, familiar with, uh, my partner, Jordan Knopf. Jordan and I together run Tusk Ventures and thought it'd be good to get him on the show and kind of have him give his view on kind of the macro economy, what it means for uh, venture and for tech, and kind of how he thinks founders should deal with it. So, Jordan, thanks for joining. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, let's start super macro, right? And, and you and I have obviously been talking about this quite a bit, which is... The state of the world today is March 10th, 11th? 10th, I think. Um, the state of the world today in terms of how it impacts the economy, H- how would you rank the different factors? Uh, I mean, well, just zooming out and saying compared to last quarter, right? Like, so thinking yep. December 10th, we were in the, the, the go-go era of 2021, and uh, things are very, very different now. Um, so I, I would say that uh, in terms of ranking the 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 level of importance of the macro events that are happening is is, is pretty difficult to do um, from a you know stack ranking perspective. But yeah. the overall factors, I would say, we've got obviously inflation, which is continuing to make headlines. Yeah. We have the Fed, that and is, we'll, we'll presumably only go up even further with the longer this war lasts. Right? Uh, well, that's a, that's see, that's where that's where it gets up for so debate. Ga- gas prices, right? Obviously, the direct impact there, huge impact. So. Um, and and then otherwise, just if it's fucking up the whole globe. Like you, I think you told me yesterday that flights oh, yeah. internationally take an extra hour and a half because they have to avoid Russian and Ukrainian airspace. The, so, and that's just that's just that's just commercial air. So right. think about the shipping distribution. You know, you right. have a massive supply chain problem. You also have, um, <laughs> ironically. Uh, one of the primary exports from that region is fertilizer used in the U.S. So you could ha- see an impact on food prices, which also plays a major role in 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 uh, the basically in your inflation index. That all being said, um, you know, I think that the the Fed's actions that they're taking to try and 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 push down that upward pressure is the number one, is the most important factor. Do you think that kind of ending quantitative easing and raising rates can have material impact on inflation right now? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think, it, I think it can. I think that there's, it's a very delicate balance. I think it's been a very long time since we have – this has been an era of cheap money for God knows how long, yeah. for a very long time. And so unwinding the Fed put is going to uh, – I, I, I think it'd be hard get. Uh, it'd be hard to find a lot a group of people that all agree with you with in the same sentiment, saying that hey, this is going to be very. This is easy. There's a textbook for this. Um, you know, I think that there it's a delicate balance, and we'll, we'll, we won't really know until let's call it the summer when we get really a, a real read on unemployment, because what can happen here is if they stop quantitative easing, you're raising interest rates really quickly. You start to put pressure on the ten-year, which is kind of your proxy for corporate defaults and also for 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 uh, for the housing market. Yeah. Um, if it starts to put a squeeze on corporations, that starts to squeeze their ability to make new hires and can strangle out unemployment, or at least it can start to increase those numbers. So you end up keeping more people out of the workforce because now they can't be hired, right. which would be a big problem. So. As you mentioned, even in recently as December, we were still kind of in in the go go days, right? Uh, where you know it was, we had to oftentimes commit to to deals sooner than we might like to normally, and valuations were high and everything else. So we're only a few months later, and the mentality and mood uh, in the market and on Wall Street has changed completely. Um, is it just the war and in inflation, or what do you think led to this? So it's a, it's a great question. So I think that. 
uh, a couple a couple of things or there are a few factors that were working here. So you had um, a mass exodus from the from the risky assets in general that people wanted to go kind of move into cash, move into this into the state, which is is kind of ironic, right? Like you have inflation at nine at eight percent, seven point nine percent, and yet people are moving into cash. Um, but I, I think that the the bigger element is you know you have you have investors that are looking at these multiples that used to be at twenty x. Um, in 2016, that was 10x, and now they're they're kind of coming back down, town to or somewhere in between. Um, but at late stage companies, so if you're a billion dollar business, let's say that one to five billion dollar company, that's who I would be probably the most concerned about. And you're still private. That path to exit, that path to to the to, to an IPO is 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 not crystal clear. Um, I think that companies will probably stay private longer if they've reached that level of valuation. Um, you know, they they have a real business. This is something that hopefully they understand the levers of those businesses and they can maintain a cash flow neutral position until maybe the liquidity window opens up or the public markets reopen. Yeah. Um, but you know, we are going to continue to see that come down and. Uh, down into stages and go earlier and earlier. Um, there's also the temptation of crossover funds to cross back over into the public market and pick up some pretty cheap some deals that are out there because yeah. um, you know the market has gone down, but it has not been selective. There are names that are everybody's feeling the pain right now, and companies are down like real companies that have real revenue. That are, Who are the ones that strike you the most? Uh, I mean, some of the names that that are just that that really do. That you know that that really do kind of there there are companies that are down eighty ninety percent uh, you know since since they went public that are that that IPO'd um, not necessarily ones that did de SPAC um, the SPAC market is one that is interesting because they're all trading around the same price right now yeah. like actually they're still getting downward pressure but that is the SPACs that that is uh, part of that is probably being driven by by being last year in a lower interest rate environment that is that is very favorable for first back transactions right. versus a, a raising rate environment yeah. so I, I just think that that you look at um where this is from a venture capital perspective um the early stage investors like ourselves we're we are patient capital we're long-term investors so what what happens in the next two years is not is not something that is you know as long as our companies can stay um you know can can keep their heads down and, and stay focused on executing and building their businesses. Where they're in the early innings by definition, right? Um, the later stage firms are the ones that need to 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 get a little bit more creative. And I would expect to see a, a, a few more bells and whistles and more creative structures on getting those companies the the capital that they need. Um, but I think there's you know there's excitement around the room from all different types of investors. I'm sure hedge funds and private equity firms are. Are waiting just for their chops. Oh yeah, they're ready to go. So, so, but even when we had the go-go days and crazy multiples and everything else, there was kind of a consistent trend of private tech companies eventually going public through one form or another, and the market saying you were way overvalued in the private market. Here's where you should really be. Um, why do you think that? Why were the private valuations so far off uh, on a lot of these companies? So. I think what we're, you're referring to the the IPO price and then a huge yeah. run up and, in the market, and, then, yeah. and now it looks like those bankers were right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. actually, spot on in a few cases. Um, so I think that uh, the retail trading craze actually uh, has had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. um, and as we know, if you if you look at fund flows in general, 
retail assets. So if you're looking at mutual funds and ETFs, those those are going to slosh around much faster than institutional capital that is committed to a strategy yeah. uh, overall. And so you know, retail money is going to move uh, um, with the market, uh, not necessarily in their best interest, but it, it does. And I think that that, but it is a. It's you, not do a you phenomenon. feel like kind of big tech stocks that are newly IPO'd have a lot more retail component of investors than institutional? It really, I think it matters. It, it really, if it's a consumer tech company, that narrative is so important, so powerful, and there are just names out there that people love. They just love the story. They love everything about it. They, if they love the product, it resonates with them. There are also companies that you know are. Um, it's, they're not solely rooted in fundamentals. I think that this market has been a momentum-driven market that has been catalyzed by narratives. And if you have a strong narrative, you say, I don't know what the magic number is, but you say technology, uh, you know, 958 times in your, in your, in your, <laughs> your S1, you're going to get a tech multiple. Um, but I, I think that, look, there's support for some of these businesses. People, there's a different sentiment out there. I think we're in a different world. I do, I genuinely believe that um, the retail investor is here to stay, and there are different values that retail investors have. It is not about just who's, who's you know, cash flows and EBITDA are the strongest, and, and the management guidance is pointing them in one direction, and they have a fundamental view of a company. Um, that, that's, 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 you know, the, the, the tried and true what the markets used to right. be approach, and that's probably where the institutional investors are still trading. Yeah. Retail investors, on the other hand, they want align. They want companies that are aligned with their views and what you know, and and what they what they believe in have alignment with their values. Um, and so you'll see companies that will trade. Uh, um, you know that that no one really understands why they're trading at the price points that they are. Um, but uh, with that being said, you know there is a price point where. Where people yeah deals make look at forty seven billion dollars we work didn't make any sense was it a two billion dollar company sure you yeah. know it's um, just a different type of yeah. investor that's yeah. not that's not cocktail conversation correct um, so let me throw then a, a theory at you that maybe helps account in my view for the decline in value from private well, companies are late stage private to when they go public and are or say public for six to twelve months so I think the interests of the market and of VCs are somewhat misaligned, right? In that people have raised bigger and bigger and bigger funds, right? And as a result, just the 2% management fee becomes a meaningful number for people. And in some ways, if you have $2 billion under management, you're taking a $40 million a year, and the two partners are each keeping 10 of that, they're thinking, you know what, as long as I can keep this steady cash flow going, my returns don't even ultimately, they'll, they'll matter long term, but short term, they don't even really matter that much. I just want the $10 million a year. And so my thesis is fund managers, especially venture fund managers, took the number, the amount of money that they think they need per year, multiplied it by 50, raised funds to that size, and then all of a sudden you have a $500 million Series A fund, you can't write a $2 million check, right? So everyone, just to deploy the capital, had to write bigger and bigger checks, which meant bigger and bigger valuations, and the same thing then perpetuated all the way down the line. So when you're at Series E or something like that, there are these you know, $50 billion valuations that the, you know, the Tigers and Fidelities uh, of the world are signing on to, and the public market's like, what the fuck? This is a company with like not that much revenue growth. And So it, it, what do you think of that theory? So I think that the, there's the one major element that combats that theory, and yeah. that is that all right, that management fee, no one gets into this business for the management fees because like, you know, if you've seen Carry you and I both know that yeah. that's that's where the that's what that's what everybody's chasing. But what if the GP changed, though? What about the GP commitment? So oh, you know you're putting as an early at whenever 
you, how, I try not to remember back to fund one and fund two whenever it's like you're basically getting management fee and you're just paying taxes on it, recontributing it back to your fund because you, right. you know, who doesn't but, need but their own you account? and I, okay. I think partly because it's when you start a fund, you have to offer more economics to investors and then partly because we're just so confident in our performance. Um, have a higher GP commitment. I mean, mo the average is still around 1%, right? So if you're taking in 2%. It's, it's about, it's about, so, you know, required for a drawdown fund to work is yeah. 1%. Market is going to be 2 but, you know, you'll have, you'll have firms that go 20% GP commitment because they believe in what they're doing. You'll have firms that go 5% because, you know, people say, well, I want, uh, you need to put more skin in the game. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the alignment should come from, come from that. But 2% on five consecutive funds can be can can can, 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 can that can add up pretty so, quickly. So if if misalignment or maybe even sort of the improper incentives by venture investors is not the reason for these crazy valuations, why do some companies sort of in the in the stage right before they go public get these you know insane valuations signed off on by really respected funds uh, and investors that almost immediately get beaten back by the market? So uh, I think there's a there's probably a, a, a plethora of different answers here yeah. for those different investment strategies. You're, and you know, I, I always say that you never, you never really know what somebody's investment strategy is unless it's your investment strategy, um, because it's just, you know, people make investment decisions for a wide variety of different reasons. But um, I think that you know, one reason why VCs continuously sign up for this over and over and over again is because we are optimists. Yeah. We are the glasses half full. We want to believe. And there are founders out there that tell that not just paint this as early stage investors, the founders that paint these pictures um, for us that, you know, of, of things that we're, we're always looking at the way the world could be. We're not rooted in fundamentals. The fundamentals don't exist. We don't know. It's a, it's a you know, people, whenever you start talking about emerging sectors right now, um, you know, I don't know, five years ago, did you ever think the White House would put out an executive order about cryptocurrency? Probably not. You know? um, Maybe you. May, I, Maybe you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, uh, we can talk about the. Uh, I don't think it was all that meaningful. No, anyway, but but, it's, but it's just in general the fact that there we're we're getting this is becoming a real factor. The world is changing. It's, yeah, it's for, definitely for changing, sure. and that's what we that's what we're always looking for. What's the next thing that's going to be changing? So it, it is rather, um, you know, this is a, 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 a investment strategy that is built on on absolute home runs and 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 that's that's critical right um and that so you know what happens at the it sure that just is a tweak on your your economics at the from that last stage to public but as you're pointing out if your entry point is at that last stage right. that could sense. be very painful unless you're you're looking at i want to back the top decile of companies and i don't care and the no, way just hang in there and you know what? Just just like I think that in the grand scheme of things, if I back all of them, I can scale this in a way by not taking board seats, by by moving quickly, covering the market, investing in competing companies, and I'm just going to let the macro environment yeah. just. Oh I'm God. a believer in technology, and we're going to win some, we're going to lose some, but if we make enough investments, I'm going to create an index. Yeah, that's certainly with the tiger theory for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for the last couple of years or at least maybe maybe really since covid it's been a if you're a founder raising a new round it's been a seller's market right you are able to get the terms you want the valuation you want you're able to minimize dilution you're able to demand answers from people very very quickly um it's clear to you and me that we're now in more of a buyer's market than we were so one how do you see that evolving and two 
what's your advice to founders? So I think that I think that we're probably going to be, and this will this will continue to trickle trickle down to, to the earlier stages. Um, but you know we are starting to see some multiples come back to reality and 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 kind of taking deals taking a little bit longer to get done. Um, they're still getting done though. Like people people were as VCs were paid we're not paid to time the market. We're, you know, we're paid to. You have to pick the right companies. Yeah, you got to pick the right companies, but you, you know, you can take informed leans on pacing, but you're not gonna, you know, you're never gonna sit on the sidelines. So I would say that that, um, you know, I wouldn't really view it as kind of like a, a buyer's market versus a seller's market because mm-hmm. there's got to be a partnership that's there because at the end of the day you're signing on together towards that future value being created. So you didn't, so it's interesting. So I felt like in the last two years, our leverage, you're right, you want ultimately a fair deal for everyone, especially for us when we're investing at Cedar A for a really long-term partnership. I felt like I had more of a gun to my head the last 18 to 24 months than, than before that. You, you get that, and that's right. So the the speed to deals happening, particularly at the A, I'd yeah. say the A just got astronomically competitive because, um, you know, as those prices came up, the round sizes continued to go up. People were going earlier and earlier, and all of a sudden, everybody had a half a billion dollar fund focused at the Series A. Those good old days of four on twenty being a bona fide Series A are long gone. Um, you know, ironically, on the other end, it, it's never been cheaper to start and run a company outside right. of labor right now. But you know, it's a uh, servers clouds. Cloud yeah, I mean, yeah, this is right. not this is not the this is not the you know the nineteen nineties or you know. 2000s. It's 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 one that I think that really, um, at its core, e- people are going to have the best, most highly sought after companies are the companies that are truly doing something very different. They're yeah. they have they have the 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 ability to tell the story. They have the track record. They have the traction. Whatever it is, those companies are still going to run a competitive process. Um, I think the days of the preempted rounds are going to go. I think that the you know. Yeah, I was. I won't name the company, but Jordan and I did a call with the founder yesterday, and he told us that the round had preempted. And I was kind of shocked because Jordan and I were texting back and forth like, "We're never going to invest in this thing." And then, but you know, you almost wonder if whoever preempted it didn't get the message that the market's changed. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, look, it's one of those things where it's also I think that that dilig- to that point that would have come out in the laundry because diligence is going to be, you know. I don't want to say that uh, speaking for other funds, but there's kind of no way that some other funds are be able would be able to move unless they're tracking a company for some time, which we all do. And so it's it's from the outside it looks like dil- no one's doing any due diligence, but they they are. Yeah. Um, but I think the rigor and the discipline, um, you know, moved. It, it got a little bit looser. Um, also, terms that that you know the the terms to win the deal like the top offs and the 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 secondaries and um you know basically making making terms that are think things that just did not used to happen yeah. giving 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 a founder a, a situation where 150 million dollars hits your balance sheet and you don't take a, any dilution because you just got a top off and then we allowed you to sell on the secondary to cover your tax liability those days are probably over right. um but with that being said you know i think that they're still able to raise. They're just able to raise at more, 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 more pendulum in the middle terms. Yeah. So, so you're a founder right now, and you're thinking, okay, um, I, I didn't. I raised eight months ago in one environment. I need to raise again in a few months in a different environment. You know, what are should they change the way that they approach investors, or is it just a question of expecting 
a little less generous terms uh, in the deal. Well, I think that the opportunist founder, um, those those that's that's gonna that's gonna end so you know if you raised eight months ago and you're back in market raising now what happened i don't understand like why would you do that this is it you should be racing you know 18 24 months right. of runway unless you're such an incredible success in which case you wanted to trouble raising or money. or yeah. you just had were in existence last year because before it was just like it didn't matter like you just would go from one race to the next seed series a it's just one giant rolling fundraising process um, here, I think that the obviously the, the quality bar is going to be higher. The, the the milestones that you need to be we are not going to see Series A companies that are still six months away from launching a product. We're going to see you know people. For me personally, as an investor, what are what am I looking for? What am I advising founders to do? Is you need to be able to raise enough capital to to especially if you're a Series A company, you need 18, 24 months run rate at least. Right. You need to know the levers of the business and be able to demonstrate how you would be able to get to a at least a highly reduced cash burn, if not a cash flow neutral position, um, should this go on for, for quite some time. I think that you know the dependency on 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 spending on digital marketing. Um, you need to be able to diversify out and prove that you have the ability to effectively convert new users using a variety of different distribution channels, not just digital spend on Instagram or whatever. Um, I think that you know capital intensive businesses that said tech enabled in front of it that we're raising using yeah. brick and mortar and, and a bunch of other things that felt much more private equity in nature. Yeah. Those, Re retail businesses. Yes. Those, yeah. yeah. Those are, those are going to go back to that. Like it, people are going to refocus on high margin, high growth, high octane SaaS or software businesses, SaaS on the B2B side on consumer software as well. Yeah. You know, I just think that people are going to go back to true technology investing and not really, you know, a, a, a good-looking landing page, but that is just providing a retail product that doesn't really make any sense to Right, be. which is why also, we, we even in the, in the boom market, we tend to shy away from CPG deals. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's one where there, it makes sense in, in specific scenarios, yeah, just like, you know, yeah. like an Amazon, but no one's going to yeah, argue one, there. That yeah, that worked out. out. You know, yeah. it's, it, no one's going to, no one's going to, no one's going to tell, tell you otherwise, but um, you know, I think that those innovative business models will be there, and I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff that's happening. Uh, that 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 is in the in in fintech in particular, yeah. Um, yeah. from my perspective, and then also in digital health, there's still mm -hmm. some things that are. You know, we're starting to see whether the pandemic likes it or not. I think that the United States, at least, is basically calling it over, um, and so people are are we're starting to see what what behavioral changes are sticking around. Yeah. So I, I so and just to be clear to the, the listeners, our top two sectors that we're in are heavily fintech and digital health. So obviously, we we think this, and our, our money is where our mouth is, and we're talking up our own book. But I, I would argue that the change in the way people consumed medicine over the pandemic wasn't a temporary thing it was a normative change that will stick so anyone it's anyone who went from driving to the doctor's office waiting in a crowded waiting room of sick people you know going in seeing the doctor for six minutes paying a bill and having to do a whole drive home and when they could do it over you know facetime or or whatever platform you know instead they're not going back to the old way of doing things. No, they're not. And then you know that's that's that 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 could be the case for certain situations. The like labs, obviously, yeah. uh, that's a, that's a big one. You know, especially treatment of chronic conditions, behavioral health. No one needs to you know to to, to 
I don't, I don't think that people are going to go back and sit on the proverbial couch in somebody's office probably ever again here. Yeah, I haven't seen my therapist in person in two years. Yeah, I mean, it's like, they're great, but we can do this over the phone. Yeah. Or, uh, and so I think that, it, that, but that's a net positive, in my opinion, because you are breaking down the barriers of the travel, the transportation, you know, there's a lot of additional costs. It matters what people can find an hour to speak to a therapist, uh, if it's a phone call or a video chat, far easier than driving to yeah, go see them. I mean, you're looking at two hours. Exactly. And so it's, you know, I think that those are one, those are long-term winners. But what's really interesting also is that, you know, in the pre-pandemic world, now you, you, there, you start to see kind of some of these themes that are emerging on the fintech side, Web3 and the decentralization. I want to access and own my own data. Right. Let's see that, what the intersection of that with digital health. Now we're talking, right? Like now I don't need to go see you and I can control my own medical records. Like, this is uh, this is this yeah, is yeah. That, that truly starts to look. If 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 we get to a world, and I, I wrote a fast company column that was a little bit satirical, but not really saying, you know, we could live in a world where the vast majority of healthcare is decentralized and we won't need hospitals anymore. We'll still need there will be things that are physical, but overall, um, yeah, I, th I think if you were able to decentralize the data, which hopefully would happen either in some sort of HIPAA update or GD US GDPR or something. But you, you mentioned fintech. I wanted to throw some different terms at you, and you tell me which ones you're the most bullish on and which ones you're the least bullish on. Can I on. also ask you, like, what does that term even sure. mean? Sure. <laughs> I may not be able to define it either. Yeah. Okay. So within the kind of Web3 blockchain world, um, these are the ones that sort of I feel like we hear about the most. Um, DeFi. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that, look, this is, this is an area that, that – there's kind of the this is at probably the one of the peak excitement areas here right so we have um decentralized finance where you're looking at the ability to you know exchange cryptocurrency to 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 to, to for consumers to access financial products to to create financial products that really have no bank or government involvement whatsoever um and you know that it's uh i guess irrespective of their geographic or socioeconomic status they have and this is this is as a really really relevant point for consumers and for small and medium-sized businesses because there are an astronomical number of SMBs out there that banks have no interest in 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 serving right like they're just they're just falling into an unloved segment because it doesn't make sense from a KYC AML or regulatory perspective that the big banks just really just have just gone on without them. And that's happened that that is a, a major focus and a major a major focal point of of you know us of what we're looking at and what gets me the most excited are solutions for small and medium sized businesses. The pain point is very real. Um, and it's one where um, particularly on the lending side. And so I think that this makes a lot of sense. Now, the regulatory risk is huge here, and that's why I'm also excited about it because of our niche. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I'd say that that is very high up there on, also on, 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 I don't even know the right way to describe it, but that is on the hype cycle, that is about as high as it's going to get. Yeah, and I, I would say, so we have a DeFi investment that we made relatively recently. They're still in style, so I'm not going to name them. But it's the most excited I've seen you about a company in, in a while. Yeah, the, there's, there's, I, I'd say on the, on the, on the fintech side, there are some, you know, I just, there are just some companies that are out there that, that, that are doing things that, that aha moment, you realize why was this not been done before? That's still out there, yeah. and especially the fact that after this huge, you know 
tech boom that occurred that there's still great ideas that great founders are executing on is, is right. Is, Those is, ones you want to invest in. Exactly. Right. A- a- NFTs. NFTs. So I, current state could not be further up on the hype cycle. I have no idea what people are doing, what people are thinking, but I do believe in the underlying technology. There is a great, there are many great use cases here. For but is NFTs. that really different than just blockchain technology overall? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, so you have the infrastructure behind it. You have the ability to enable smart contract execution. Um, blockchain technology really is much broader from an infrastructure perspective on building up, building protocols that need, desperately need enhancements. So for speed, for cost for you know for, for a lot of the things that you know people always knock on the original protocols for or the kind of legacy protocols for um, you know that that need to be built side by side but the concept of a non-fungible token is a way to, to transfer um, you know title ownership fractional ownership of an asset it's also a gateway into the metaverse which is Probably yeah, we're going to get to that. Uh, I just saw it, just read the facial expression on that one. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, let me just throw out my theory of NFTs which is I would argue, look, I, I don't get it. it. And we do have more investment in the space. Um, but Lyle is always trying to get me to buy him the board ape or whatever it is. Um, Your son's got great taste. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but with actual cryptocurrency, there are very few things you can buy. You can buy like rocket launchers and grenades on tour, right? And, and you know, MDMA or whatever that is. But legally, you know, it's really NFTs if you don't want to do any kind of conversions, right? And so to me, for as long as cryptocurrency is basically an asset class and not a currency, NFTs remain artificially high in pricing simply because there's just nowhere else for the money to go. Um, When either people realize that converting is easier than they think, or we hit the metaverse where crypto converts from an asset class to a currency, then I think NFTs are in trouble. I mean, so... With the, I would say that the metaverse can be an enabler, also, right? Like so, you, but you would need to believe that physical items will play a role there. So, real assets, you want to get them into the metaverse. You're going to do that by digitizing it and tokenizing it, and that's how that's going to get brought into whatever virtual world you want to. Like, let's say sandbox. Or Are you buying metaverse property? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm. I am dabbling around in the currency that is used in the metaverse, uh, but you know valuing actually digital plots of land is something that I probably need to spend another decade figuring out. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was telling Lyle this morning, we were reading the post, and there was some article about the high prices that people are paying for, you know, the houses, whatever it is in the metaverse, that you and I went to a that Christmas party like four or five years ago, uh, and yes. it was an auction for Decentraland. And I was thinking, time like, I don't know, I just buy a few things just just to have them. And I, we didn't, uh, but I wish that I had. was that was brilliant. No, no, yeah. it's, it's uh, you know those those are the good, the good, the good. But you know, look, I mean, at the end of the day, if you look back at the, the it, it, that makes sense. Like that that this isn't thing. If you think about the future of entertainment, the future of um, the creator economy, the future of um, people's ability to earn and to to kind of generate economic value in general, whether that's for a company, whether that's for a person in an, a, a digital realm. So, I mean, that sounds really video gamey, but it's not necessarily like a digital. I mean, anything that's you know, you're buying something on the internet seems completely foreign, you, you know, and now e-commerce is everything. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's not as far-fetched. And I think that, look, some people get thrown off with like the VR, AR concept. That's, that, that's not, that's a, that's a feature. That's not necessarily a, a fundamental part about it. I would say that the integration of NFTs though do, are, are critical if you were to 
be able to bring in economics uh, in a meaningful way into the metaverse, like that, that would play a critical function. Just the technological, uh, just from a just from a tech perspective. What about DAOs? DAOs are really interesting because it's almost like I want somebody in charge. How is this a good idea? You know, but in at its core, I think it is it is uh, a, a very interesting governance mechanism because yeah. I don't, and I think that just to go back to where we started up from, like, I can't, people don't really trust the government, right. what they this, say, yeah, what they under, do, what's happening is, this right is the underlying now. underlying use case for crypto. Exa well, exactly, and it's also with a DAO, it's like, okay, like, what happens whenever not one person has the ability to just grab the reins and, and do whatever they want to do, that is mitigated. But you also are eliminating, there's not a solid enough of a fundamental governance mechanism on my end, establishing accountability. For yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, look, I find, like you, I find DAOs fascinating. I think the application is not dissimilar to some of the work we're doing in mobile voting, so I think there, there may be some utility for us around there. But I would say, right, the, the biggest challenge with DAOs is hard, running anything by committee or consensus is incredibly hard. Someone needs to be in charge. The biggest upside, though, is maybe it's just like a new kind of... Um, crowdfunding mechanism effectively, right? Yep. Where it becomes a way to, to raise money to, to do something that introduces you to people outside of your own network. But it, it doesn't really introduce you to people and then what are the, what's the thing that you're gonna do? You know, like, yeah, you've got to have an answer. That, for sure. And it's like I don't know. There's a thousand I'm gonna people. Buy, I'm going to buy the Broncos. That seems but to be the biggest one. They, one could, right they now. could be like, hey, you the know Constitution. What? Yes, the Constitution one. That was kind of a uh, you know, that was a great. That was a, that was a, that was an exciting time to just to see something and in a level of excitement around so, uh, you know something that no one had really ever talked about Dallas in main in the in, in mainstream media at least until then. Um, so I think that that was that was that was really exciting. And I think that we will see. Um, probably some better use cases around DAOs when it comes down to like economic development and land usage and yep. so on because those are things that one person probably shouldn't right. you know be making so, all the so decisions on. Last question: How many you know we're all talking about Web three in the metaverse because it's super fun to talk about and think about. How many deals are you actually seeing in the space? You know, it's you would think that it matters. I guess what definition for Web three you want to use because there's right. like so many of them at this point. I think that you know at its core we're we see a, a good chunk of of them, but um, a good chunk of deals. Of the, but that's just a relative number. I would say that that from my perspective, a lot of a lot of engineering talent is right now um, focused on building out protocols and 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 they're less focus on building companies sitting on top of those protocols, yeah. um, that will shift over yeah. time. And yeah. it did just like it did in 2017. And there will be a, a many more companies that are out there taking advantage of um, the new tech uh, that's at the, the, the kind of the base layer yeah. and applications that are built on top yeah, if, of it. If, if you were to build a metaverse-only fund, like when I look every week, I'm like, okay, how many companies I meet with, which companies I meet with, what sectors were they in? It, there's a lot of fintech, but there's not necessarily a, a lot of Web3 or Metaverse. It will come, but yeah, I, I do think where we are in terms of our intellectual interest compared to where we are in actual investing opportunities are, are a little dis disparate right now. Yeah, and especially just given the legal fund structures that are out there, there's a lot of heartburn around, and we're seeing you know, some venture firms that are re, you know, they're, they're changing their entire legal structures just so they can, you know, 
create funds that are that can hold tokens, um, that is a gating factor for, factor for traditional drawdown funds. Like you, you're you're investing in equity, which is um, you know whether that's preferred, whether it's count, whatever whatever your investment strategy is, that is a claim that is future cash flows of a business. Whereas you know tokens are are you know. The economic incentives are definitely are definitely different than future cash flows versus you know the the ability to create a network effect uh, as quickly as possible as an early yeah. adopter. So Jordan, uh, people who enjoy this and want to hear more of your thoughts, where can they find you? So uh, find me on Twitter at Jordan Off, um, and yeah, that's probably the best place. Or drop me an email, Jordan at Tusk.vc. There we go. Thanks for joining us.